apologies. I'm clearly on my A game here this morning. I am Saren Kaster, one of the hosts of the Green Majority, uh, as the noted by the one in one third uh, playing of our intro theme song there. Uh, before I pass you to uh, my two colleagues here who are going to go through the news, I will personally voice, add mine to that of Ken's, thanking everyone so much for their uh, contributions and their generous contributions at that very much. Very important, very needed, very necessary, and very, very appreciated. And with that, I throw you to Stefan and Dave. Yes, uh, community radio listeners are the greatest kind of radio listeners because they love the authentic voice of the community. <laughs> I, I, I like the slow pacing of that of that uh, of that call out. That's radio. That that is radio. Yes. Uh, speaking of radio, we have a great show for you today. Uh, we'll be coming in at the middle section. Uh, Lauren uh, will be will be calling in once again to talk about uh, the declaration or the attempt to declare climate emergencies both in Ontario and federally, and that is sort of going to play out uh, through a lot of the show. Uh, this conversation about how one impacts. Uh, climate um, movement, really, or movement on climate change uh, from the standpoint that where we sit uh, right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, individual people, uh, I could totally see them um, being a little discouraged uh, by by exactly <laughs> where we stand within the Canadian context of, of climate change. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like we've got they. We've got momentum, uh, but kind of in one sort of specific spot. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got momentum in the people, and, and it's not really transferring over um, into the into the into the the leadership of this country. No, uh, how could it? Exactly, how could it? Um, and and I think well, well, that's the question. How can we do this? I, I know we had teased last week that this would be an interview uh, about with with someone from our time talking about the Green New Deal. Uh, we had to push that into into June due to unforeseen circumstances. We will still have that conversation, uh, but this one's a little more still on the same topic of of really getting to some action, but uh, a little wider, long, bigger conversation. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting off with 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 we're starting off setting up the first two stories very quick, very short, but really. Set the tone uh, for why one might think there is a climate emergency. Uh, so let's start with the the atmosphere. So we have reached a carbon level of 415 parts per million in the atmosphere, which has not occurred in over three million years since well before humans existed. This means that our species has never before witnessed an atmosphere such as what we've now concocted for ourselves. Yeah, and this is actually quite important um, in regards to the fact that th whenever you hear the the argument that everything's always changing, um, or or that the Earth has always had these uh, has always has always had these cyclical movements of of heating and cooling, um, and and that this is that the climate is always changing is a, is a number one messaging from from climate denialists, and this is an example uh, of why that is true. In that there was a time where we had four point, you know, four hundred fifteen parts per million in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. uh, that time was three million years ago, and so the fact that we have managed to to go up um, at at the speed at which we have uh, is is a is a should is a deep concern, um, and and that that has to be uh, addressed really, um, and so. And so, yeah. And so, like, if you ever hear that argument, uh, someone will say this to you. It's 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 currently being said to us all the time. The, the climate still changing is a is is one of the most common, most popular uh, refrains. That it was hear. like this before when there were uh, little marsupials crawling along the floor. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, if you want to go back to a time when humans didn't exist, uh, then sure, it's been the same. Uh, then it's always changing, and we'll continue on. But if you want to really react to the emergency we're experiencing, maybe some real action is necessary. Um, and so that. That's that is the thing. It, the 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 other part, of course, is time scale. How quickly we went from three fifty three fifty to four fifteen has actually never happened before. Uh, so that argument is sort of bunk on multiple levels. But I just wanted to sort of frame that out. Yeah. No. I just uh, I think I just want to jump in because there's that's like a, it's a saying. It's it's not limited just to climate change, right? Like it's it's a thing people do. And so the a uh, an analogy I might draw. I know shocking for me, metaphor and analogy. Uh, but the 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 saying, um, well, everything causes cancer is similar and as a cancer survivor that is particular poignancy for me but the 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 way in which people use that expression well everything causes cancer because that's like a saying now right um is that it, the implied there is that well you can't avoid it so we should reset normal 
right? Like that's essentially what's implied, right? Like don't worry about it. You can't avoid cancer, so stop worrying about it. And that really is a destructive attitude um, because everything really does cause cancer and our response should be to change that. <laughs> uh, but this is an area where that happens even worse, right? Where it's like, well, I don't understand climate change, but unless it was invented five seconds ago, it's obviously fine. Um, no. And everything causing cancer isn't fine either. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 so, and, and this is the, yeah. So if you have short version, if you ever hear that argument, uh, the two things to point out is one has not happened when humans have been alive and two, uh, the time scale at which, the, at which we've increased the atmosphere has also never happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and when people talk, pe the people's mass of understand misunderstanding of how geologic time, geological time and how wide and huge as frames are, um, is, is a severe detriment so you, uh, you to our ability. That except that, that, accelerated carbon leap is unique in the history of the earth exactly yes um yeah the, the, the speed at which other of these things happen happen over about ten thousand years which is very quick on uh, again on a geologic time scale but obviously it's been a lot more than ten thousand years since now mm. um but let's let's get to the second reason why there's definitely an emergency on our hands temperatures in the arctic have shattered yet another record having been recently 30 degrees higher than normal for this time of year reaching 84 degrees fahrenheit Almost all sea ice older than four years is now gone, with total sea ice at a record low. Yeah, so this is one of those um, those things that continues to be uh, sort of builds on top of itself as uh, of, of types of ways and reasons to be concerned. You know, if if you see the the a loss of sea ice is is the direct contributor to to higher sea levels, and and often you, people don't fully understand the importance of, of higher sea levels uh, because like an extra foot uh, doesn't look like a lot. Um, and the extra two feet. And if you lose all the sea ice, then it gets to, like, I think it's 25. And that, at that point, everyone will experience this. Uh, but the, the real key is if you're wondering why things like Hurricane Sandy are so uh, difficult, or so, or, 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 Hurricane Sandy were, were so, um, were worse than, than, than New York has experienced, one of those reasons is that if the base level of sea is, is about a foot higher, then the storm surge uh, is, 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 is multiplied, really. Mm. Um, and the storm so, surge being that rising ocean when the, when the storm comes in, the winds come in and hit the... Uh, exactly, exactly. If you're, exactly. So if you're already dealing with one or two just regular feet extra just all the time, then the storms become that much more dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is, um, and so the, so the Arctic that is, it is warming faster than every other part of the city, every other part of the world. And so that's important. Um, uh, this is the, this is the type of, of response. Um, uh, this, this is what you'd expect really, uh, the, 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 the decrease of sea level ice, how, how, how quickly it's happening. And then, uh, the way this will really impact us, uh, a, it will severely, this is the, the, the huge threats to these low lying, uh, Pacific Island nations, um, which will be wiped off the map unless we really start acting quickly. Um, but also these storm surges, uh, are the two main reasons why this is going to, the ways this will really, really affect people. Um, but let's, let's, let's carry on this sort of thread and move on to someone, uh, people who are treating this like in a like an emergency so roger hallam and david durant of extinction rebellion have been acquitted of all charges dating back to 2017 which followed their arrest as part of an ultimately successful campaign demanding that king's college london divest millions of pounds from the fossil fuel industry the pair representing themselves in court admitted to painting the words divest from oil and gas in water-soluble chalk-based spray paint on the walls of the university's great hall but pleaded not guilty to criminal damages noting that chalk on the wall is obviously less important than the impending catastrophe for the planet they were charged with causing ten thousand dollars in damages that could have that could have and could have faced as much as 18 months in prison the London jury took the minimum two hours to declare the acquittal, even after specific instructions from the judge not to consider the defendant's argument that their actions were necessary in light of climate change. This is known as the necessity defense, which was first used successfully by Greenpeace activists charged with shutting down a coal fire power plant in, in 2008. Tim Crossland, uh, director of the climate campaign group Plan B, called the decision, quote, incredibly significant and a test of public opinion. I love the, I love the quote uh, from the two of them 
uh, just the quote, chalk on the wall is obviously less important than the impending catastrophe for the planet, uh, is a pretty strong argument, I think, especially when it's water soluble chalk. Mm. Um, but again, this is, this is what, uh, this, you know, the, we've talked about Extinction Rebellion's sort of, uh, MO, uh, previously about, about really treating this climate change thing like an actual emergency. Um, and, and the, and the fact that the courts, if the courts really start actually consistently upholding the necessity defense, um, even if they weren't even technically allowed to use it here, but if but if if juries really start actually taking this this seriously, um, I think that would be a huge ramp. You could see a pretty significant ramp up of response and action um, uh, by activists able to use this defense to really start you know you know, throw, you know, like the, the, someone specific metaphor, but, you know, throwing themselves actually like on the gears. It's an interesting defense. I'm going to break your stuff and screw up your day and, and mess up your whole business plan. But you can't do anything in, in, to me in the courts because it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, it is, it is the kind of system that would, the defense itself rests on this concept that there are, that there are greater challenges we must be addressing. Um, and I think honestly, one of the things that, Potentially would be benefiting from a de declaration of emergency, uh, you know, by different places, is the is the fact that uh, these type of defenses are, would be given some sort of more credibility. You know, uh, the UK, I think, because of XR rebellion, quite recently declared a climate emergency, um, and so if the if the actions um, that someone if they continue to not take actions that seem to lead to taking it seriously as emergency, then the argument for individuals taking those actions become stronger and stronger every day. You know, if, if you if you as a government are admitting that there is an emergency, but not taking the action necessary, then then what else is there to do but the citizens to to step up? Um, and so I think that uh, that 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 so I think that's when we talk about the sort of need, the purpose of declaring emergency, one of those has to be the fact that it's an admittance by the government that they are not doing enough. Um, and and so we'll, we'll get that in the middle section. Yeah, there's two. Um, I, I mean, I think David, I think we were uh, alluding to is the sort of the le the legal basis and legal precedent that is uh, that this is sort of stemming from, and and uh, one way uh, that it could be interpreted. Uh, I will once again. I don't feel like I need to make this disclaimer, but I will. I'm not a lawyer. That being said, um, my view of it was be this: the precedence that this is stemming from is that we we have long established, often new laws are codified by. Not completely inventing new laws, but by reinterpreting old laws that are now imprecise because the world has changed, right? This, this is where a lot of new laws come from, right? Um, is not necessarily some new uh, concept that we've put onto our society, but some old concept which now needs to be codified differently because the reality has changed, right? So some pretty stable democratic norms that I feel like have been around since like Kings, uh, since before we had democracy, uh, is the idea of the right to self-defense, right? So if you go kill someone, it's murder. But if you kill someone who's broken into your house and is standing over you with a, with a knife that they stole from your kitchen, um, you don't go to jail for that, generally speaking, right? So the, the basis from here, from that point would be, okay, well, the intruder in this case isn't just trying to rob me and scare me or startle me and I had a good reason to react in the moment in urgency, they're sending me emails six months in advance that they're going to murder me and my whole family. And the, the, the metaphor there is that this is a lot more, the damage being done by the perpetrator is is orders of magnitude larger. And the response is not to murder that company, the, the homeowner in this case shooting the burglar, it's to ask them to leave nicely. And so if we use that principle, the same concept of there is a point in which the normal rules of society don't apply because the need is extreme and your rights, certain rights override other rights, that principle informs this principle. And if we're following that, it, this is the most downplayed, watered down version of it that you could possibly imagine. Which is? Because they're not asking to put these companies out of business. They're saying, don't arrest us for pointing out that what they're doing is going to kill millions of people, hmm. right? So that's on that basis. This is actually an extremely watered down version of a principle that we already accept in our society, which is the right to self-defense. Now, I don't think that's a legally, I, I don't think it's going to stand up in the Supreme Court, but I just, I, I wanted to put that baseline that we're not inventing new rights. We're simply applying existing concepts that are the basic foundations of our democracy and simply applying them somewhere we hadn't before because we never had problems that were in that scope before. 
And so we've never had a need for laws that deal with these scope problems. And so there weren't laws that deal with that scope problem. So the best we can do in the interim is apply the laws that we have and try and interpret them fairly towards the situation that we have. And this is that. And that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, I think the I think the key really, um, I think we've talked about this in previous um, shows, is the fact that the longer that um, the governments fail to take real action, uh, the more uh, the 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 it, it is delegitimizing for governments uh, to the, to to not take real action on this, and 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 I think the longer that they admit that that they are that this is a serious threat and not take action, the longer people will start working outside of the current systems to get action. Um, and so the only way around this, if you if you are a company that or a government that wants to stop this use of necessity defense, then start taking this seriously enough to make the case that 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 what they are doing isn't necessary. And it right now it really feels like it's very necessary. Um, you know, I think actually it's quite interesting. I'm going to throw to our last two sort of good stories right here at the end before we go to the music break. Um, and one of them actually is is directly tied actually to that first use of this necessity defense. You know, in 2008, Greenpeace activists uh, stand up. Um, and, and, and trying to shut down a coal plant. Um, and then and then this week, uh, or at least last week, I believe, uh, we have this kind of news. Yeah, so for the first time since 1882, the UK has gone a full week without using any energy from coal. Yeah, so it's it's doable. Um, uh, you know, we did it here in Ontario. Uh, you know, coal is at this point, is it, like, people can't even get financing for no coal projects at this point because everyone's accepted that this one's gone. Um, you know, it's it's really is, there are a few places that it still remains very important and that's sort of where it's being stuck at. But like the, the coal industry is gone um, and it's just a matter of the sp- at speed at which we can move on, the, the more like we are. Um, and speaking of moving on, Washington State. Washington State has committed to 100% clean energy by 2045 after Hawaii, California, New Mexico, and Puerto Rico uh, have made similar commitments. Six other states are also looking at following suit. Yeah, and so uh, this is a um, twenty forty five is is a is a obviously a bit of a ways off, um, and it really and all these things uh, these big targets and data later dates really leave me with the question: Well, what are you doing tomorrow? Um, what are you doing in the next four years? Uh, given how often you know how many different governors will there be between now and twenty forty five? Uh, so I'm not really holding my breath for for any of these particular things to adjust. But I think these targets, if these targets are met with an ambitious plan starting today. Uh, you know, then then these are the examples of types of actions that you could get to really start taking this whole problem seriously. Um, now, I, you, unfortunately, we're beyond the point now where just changing um, power, how we get our power, uh, is is enough. But but when you think about what parts of go- what parts governments can change relatively more, more easily, uh, the first thing is the first step is getting rid of coal and moving to renewable energy. That's that's that is the less than baseline at this point. Um, and then and then we'll get to the spindle section and, 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 section, and, and it will hopefully, as we go on, probably, again, in in, in, in new June, uh, have this conversation about what a what a real action, what, what Green New Deal looks like, what what truly changing uh, the system looks like. Uh, but uh, let's, let's go to music break because we're going to come back uh, with Lauren to talk about uh, this, the, the, the attempts um, to call climate emergencies at both federally and provincially. Uh, you are listening to CAUT 89.5 FM. Thank you so much. Saren, what do we listen to? In a prison yard at night An Alsatian barking for the stars to go In the attic of a house And the slats of black which creep across the room In a forest grove at down The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. All right, we are back, and uh, I think I got it today. I'm wow, I'm just I'm just hitting. I'm just ten out of ten today. What's a what's a sports thing I could use, Stefan? Batting a thousand is that a thing? Yeah, there you go. Woo, nice, and and baseball too. Well done. There you go. Uh, just add some sarcasm to that, and away we go. Uh, <laughs> now I give you uh, Lauren. Yes, uh, Lauren, are you in there? I sure am. Amazing. So great to hear you. Uh, so we are talking about uh, the climate emergencies. Uh, so Dave, take us away. So in federal politics, the New Democratic Party and the Liberals 
uh, have now both brought forward motions for the discussion of what they are calling a climate emergency, the NDP doing so on Wednesday and the Liberals on Thursday. The NDP motion has already been defeated, however, probably because it called for the cancellation of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, which the Liberals purchased a year ago to the tune of $4.5 billion to ensure its completion. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is calling for a complete end to all fossil fuel subsidies and has said that we, quote, cannot be relying on fossil fuels as an energy source at all in this country. He has also now flip-flopped on his support for the liquid natural gas pipeline, still being actively opposed by the Wet'suwet'en First Nation in northern BC. The flip comes as anti-fracking sentiment has grown in BC, recently causing the NDP to lose a seat to the Greens. Singh's change of heart caused Justin Trudeau to get his knickers in a knot, who expressed dismay that Singh is all of a sudden willing to risk thousands of jobs and, quote, the largest private investment in Canadian history. Whereas Singh argued that Trudeau is not serious about climate change, since he is in love with pipelines, and he's not attempting to reduce carbon any more than 30% below 2005 levels by 2030, which is the same proposal that was fumbled out by the ousted Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper six months before the 2015 election. Singh's new concern about the coastal gas link pipeline probably isn't due to a renewed consideration of Indigenous rights, however. Uh, however, since back in January he told CTV Uh, He argued that the consultations had been very meaningful and that the elected leaders had essentially all agreed to let it go through. But Wet'suwet'en land protectors argue that the elected band councils are the artifice of the Canadian state and do not represent the people who hold treaty rights over the huge areas of traditional land outside of the reserves. Still, Jagmeet Singh now believes that the oil sector is doomed no matter what we do, given that the global economy is shifting away from fossil fuels. He will likely call for an almost 50% reduction in Canadian emissions over the next 10 years, which is apparently in line with the most recent UN climate assessment. The Liberal climate emergency motion, meanwhile, uh, remains vague, which, quote, requires that Canada commit to meeting its national emissions targets under the Paris Agreement and to making deeper reductions in line with the agreement's objective of holding global warming below 2 degrees Celsius and pursuing efforts to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. The federal conservatives are also apparently concerned about carbon emissions, with a spokesperson saying that the declaration of a climate emergency is mere rhetoric and expressing concern that Trudeau is not going to meet his emissions targets. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, however, does not desire to declare a climate emergency unless we focus on the, quote, global context of emissions, meaning that he thinks we should do very little and probably nothing. He has stated, however, that he wants to remain in line with the current targets suggested by the Harper government, but has also said that he merely wants meaningful reductions. He also called Trudeau a hypocrite for flying in a plane. He gave a speech on the economy in Toronto yesterday called, quote, Limited Government, Unlimited Potential. Ugh. Uh, I'm, I'm going to throw to you first, Lauren. What do you got? Um, yeah, it's just been sort of interesting to see this all roll over the last couple of days. I think it's super indicative and it kind of gives us a snapshot of what this election is going to go like going forward um, with climate seemingly sort of at the center of all these discussions. Um, because on one hand, you have the NDP, who's like, in a lot of ways, putting forward some some really good ideas and and mirroring what people in the climate community are asking for. Um, and and sort of, although it's very early stages, um, doing so in, in a way that sort of I don't know, is bringing some people on side, is making some people feel like maybe they have a little more confidence in the NDP than they have in the last couple of years. However, that action is kind of only visible to those who are already, like, in the weeds and pay attention to the policy. Like, I don't think the average Canadian knows that that the NDP's climate emergency motion is any different than the one, than the, one the Liberals put forth, if, if they even realize that there were two separate motions put forth this week. And then you have the Liberals who, <laughs> who were kind of middling, like they always do, Saying saying that they're gonna try better and and oh we're we're gonna get our targets in line with with um, IBCC 1.5 recommendations but like we're we're not even on track for like our super pathetic 30 percent by 2030 reduction so like until I see a plan that actually reflects this this newfound ambition I I don't buy it I don't have any faith in you 
And and then, yeah, and then you have the conservatives led by Sheer just being like, mm, but you fly in planes and use plastic, so everything you say is pointless. So I think it's, I don't know, the, the ridiculousness of the last couple of days is, is just a taste of what's to come. And <laughs> and I'm so not looking forward to the election. But. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. Um, yeah, I feel like we're we're trapped between the soft denialism of the liberals and the hard denialism of of the conservatives, um, mm-hmm. and and it's a shame. I I, I feel that, that that I'm I'm sort of concerned that the the NDP are, are so are, are late to the game uh, on building up sort of their 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 climate plan to really galvanize uh, enough support. Now, there's the, the the election has not technically been called yet, and so there remains um, plenty of time. Um, but, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's interesting that sort of the, the, the liberals response seemingly to anything that the NP says is, is like, uh, like, because I think the conservatives are going to go so hard on the liberals carbon tax, it sort of plays into the hands of the liberals who want to, if, if they want to pretend they're running left, right. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, as many times as every single climate activists can, can, can respond to Catherine McKenna saying you bought a pipeline, um, which, you know, is true. They bought a pipeline. Um, that, that still is a, um, I, I, I will someone, you know, will the, will the less, will the person who's less plugged in really note the difference? Um, you know, mm-hmm. especially as, especially as the, as liberals continually have these, have these more public battles with, with conservative premiers, um, around a price on carbon. Sorry to jump in. I just want to remind people uh, that the this is the liberal. This has been the conservative playbook for a hundred years in Canada, which is right before the election, get the left parties to fight with one another. So I, I actually I just wanted to jump that in because I do vehemently disagree with you about that, Stefan. I think this is the normal strategy that is often very effective for conservatives, which is to have the left eat itself right before the election. Yeah, but like I, I, I think the. The way the conservatives are positioning this, they are, you know, they they are equating uh, what the liberals are doing to real action. You know, they're almost like in some ways they are. You now, I think the the problem is that it's not real action. But they right. But the, they the point are. of that, sorry, I'm sorry. The the point of that is to get all the people who are care about climate change in a macro sense but don't actually understand it to vote liberal, and all the people who actually do understand climate action to vote NDP. That's how you split the left. Hmm. Oh well, I like I, well, I think there's the the will. We'll see how it plays out as we as we move forward, um, because the yeah, because the, there's just I think I think it's interesting that you know the NDP sort of comes out with a with with a commentary and, and the response from the liberals is is their own thing that has just that is basically saying yes it's emergency but more of the same and again if the, the liberals lib- sorry the no. liberals expressed the uh, opinion that uh, the NDP's climate motion was mere political games gamesmanship mm. in order uh, right opportunism but, but their climate emergency which doesn't change anything at all is is very serious and important <laughs> I'm sure um, well let's let's move on to even more distressing fact fun facts which is how we are doing in Ontario. So the provincial NDP, meanwhile, is trying to get Ontario to declare its own climate emergency. But Premier Doug Ford has countered that attempt with a flabbergasting Orwellian reversal, stating that the real climate crisis is, in fact, the federal carbon tax. The National Observer quotes him as saying, quote, I tell you, one of the biggest climate crises right now is burdening the backs of businesses, burdening the backs of the people day in, day out with this terrible, terrible carbon tax. We've proved the federal government we don't need a carbon tax to be environmentally friendly. Our Minister of the Environment has put together a solid plan, a great plan, to make sure we're environmentally conscious, to make sure we go after the big emitters. He also said that cancelling the White Pines project, quote, made a lot of people happy. It's unfortunate we can't cancel the rest of them. Driving up costs anywhere from 14 cents per kilowatt to 40 cents. They're gouging the people. This has never, there has never been a bigger transfer of wealth from the hardworking people of Ontario to the political insiders in these energy projects. We believe in climate change, but we also believe in supporting companies and people to create jobs. The carbon tax is the worst single tax you could put on the backs of the people of Ontario. A ham-handed rendition of this carbon tax ramble seems to be Ford's mirror shield against the Medusa of anything he doesn't want to confront. For instance, when Ford recently asked, when Ford was recently asked if he support some of, if he supported some of his colleagues in their anti-abortion rallying, he deflected to the carbon tax. And when asked why he got rid of eighty percent of Ontario's land ambulance services, he deflected to the carbon tax. I didn't even know about the ambulances. Now that's an emergency. Forty-two out of fifty-two. Wow. Uh, all right, Lauren, to you first. Yeah, I know this isn't the most astute of political observations, but just hearing Ford 
I don't know, ramble on about the Minister of Environment has put together a solid plan, a great plan, the best plan. It's like, I, yeah, I know I, it, I'm not a genius by comparing him to Trump, but like it, it truly is astounding how he's been so effectively using the Trump playbook to, to I don't know, win over the hearts and minds of so many Ontarians. Um, unfortunately, the one kernel of truth he does sort of say is that canceling the White Pines project made a lot of people happy because it did. There were a whole lot of folks in that rural community who didn't want that project to go forward. I think largely because that's what sometimes happens. And it's, and it's something that we see when we get like green capitalism as supposedly the answer to, to, to the, to the state we're in right now. Um, it's still a big company coming in taking over somebody else's land and dictating to them how it should be used. And we know that that's not how, how an effective transition is going to be executed. Um, uh, green energy is going to have to be community-driven and community-adopted, and, and in an ideal situation, a, a cooperative. Um, so I, I hate that he's right about people being happy about the White Pines Project being canceled, but um, but he, he kind of was. Uh, just maybe not for the reason he thinks. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, the, I'm, I'm consistently depressed um about the about the 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 effectiveness uh or perceived i want to say perceived effectiveness because in reality you know uh i, I, I his numbers are actually quite poor um mm-hmm. uh, from from running um you know just cuz he won a majority uh while telling us nothing about what he would do does not mean that he currently maintains a, a huge amount of support i believe it's a recent poll had 81% of ontarians saying they would be affected by his cuts um which is a remarkable number of people um, but, uh, but I think you're, 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 the, the bit about focusing on the four cent change in, 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 a, on a carbon tax is to me one of those like quintessentially disingenuous things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I remember a couple days after, uh, the carbon, a couple of, if everyone, if anyone remembers the, the hundred, you know, the, every single MP was seemingly forced to, to go to a pump and then complain about the, the price of, of gas the day before the price of the, the federal price in carbon came in. And, and then, and that was, you know, it was like, Oh, it's one twenty two Now it's one twenty six or, or whatever the prices were. Um, and then two days later, uh, the prices jumped by 15 cents just because that's what guys got, what, what gas prices do. And it was like, it's, it's, it's totally a, you know, and then there's no, and then whispers or nothing at all from the, from the, from the government saying, you know, if, then this is what we have to respond to. Um, it's just so disingenuous to be cutting so many services from so many people and then acting like you really care about them being charged four extra cents. You know, where is the care of the four extra, of the, of the, of the, of this minute cost uh, to any of the people who are trying to have child care um, that, that are, that the services that are being cut or not some of this, or, um, or students going to, going to universities uh, that are experiencing their own services being cut. You know, this is, this is such a, uh, so, so in line with, I think the, you sort of referenced his, his Trumpian nature. And I think that level of which the, 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 my, I think the most true statement I've ever heard about Trump is that the cruelty is the point. And I think, and I think for Ford, a similar thing feels true. Um, that the point is who will get mad about this? Um, and, and if it's the greenies, then, then, then he's all for it. Um, and so you're seeing that sort of play out in a couple of different ways. Um, and, and, and also in the ways that, you know, he is more than happy to spend a whole bunch of money on a, on a variety of giving, you know, giving uh, his own insiders, uh, you know, huge contracts, uh, but is, but is, tr- is really looking out for the little guy. Why this four cents on, on, on for a carbon tax? It's, it's just, it's just, it's pure hypo- hypocrisy, uh, well beyond the idea that people who care about climate change can't fly in planes. Um, but also, you know, limiting flying is good as a key, key note. Uh, we're coming up towards the end though. So I, I want to give you uh, last thoughts before we, uh, before we had a music break. Thanks. Um, I think sort of what we're seeing at the provincial and federal levels around these declarations of climate emergency uh, really sort of drives home for me is that um, where we are seeing solid ambition and action on climate is, in, in this country at least, is, is at the municipal level. Um, if you look at the climate emergency motions that have sort of, that, that the province and, and the feds are sort of riding the wave of, in, in most of these cases, uh, these motions weren't empty declarations. Um, they help with them solid action points. Um, in Vancouver's case, it was to develop a carbon budget for the city to allow for more effective carbon accounting. In Ottawa's case, it was for them to develop a climate resiliency or, um, or adaptation plan. And then in the case of a lot of cities, um, including the above and, and Halifax, for instance, there were requirements for, for new climate planning to include an equity lens or, or an equity report. 
Um, so, but yeah, I feel like the, the feds in the province are, are riding the coattails of this policy change that's, that's happening at a municipal level and it's happening effectively. Um, so if people are, are feeling despair that we're not doing anything, turn your focus and your activism in some cases to, to what your city hall is doing because there's so much power there. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, to 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 end to yes and that I think the other place that we're look, we're seeing it is within individuals, and I think that's mm-hmm. why I think that's why municipal politics is actually moving is that it, it is a place where we feel like we actually where the, where individuals feel like they have a have a much more consistent and immediate voice, um, mm-hmm. and, and so and you aren't sort of bound by all the sort of the party politics. So yeah, get involved locally. It is it is so important. Um, thank you so much as always, Lauren. Uh, let's head us uh, to the music break. We're coming back in now, and uh, I'm a little surprised. I mean, you're listening to The Green Majority. That's not a surprise. Uh, You're listening here on CIUT. That is also not a surprise, Mm. unless it is a surprise because you're actually on a podcast. You're like, wait a minute. I'm not listening to the radio right now, Mm. or I'm not in Toronto. That doesn't make any sense. The point is... That was not your song, Dave. That wasn't my. That wasn't my song. Mm-hmm. I was looking for my boy Millennial. That ah. was a band called Millennials. Well, d- okay. okay. I'm. I'm clearly not. Uh, Next week. I'm clearly uh, over par. Yes, exactly. Yes. Next there's week. too many. Yeah, there's too many. There's too many of them. Next it's week like we'll only have one Millennial. Right. Um, and that, then I guess the three of us. That's the right way to say that, though, right? Yes. Under par would you be shot a, good a bogey. Yes, you so I'm, shot I'm a bogey. way yeah. over par. On this <laughs> <laughs> a few too many millennials. Uh, next week we'll have only one. Um, I'm going to be quiet now. All right, <laughs> Stefan and Dave. All right, let's get. Uh, we're we're going to get. We're going to jump right into uh, a number of stories. Not so much directly related to climate emergencies, but sort of more related to the other types of th- things that are happening on our environment that should be a concern and should be paying attention to. Let's start with air pollution. Yeah. So thank you to our uh, new volunteer again, news volunteer uh, Chris Moray for these. Uh, air pollution stories. Um, so with much of the current criticism of the fossil fuel industry focused on the existential threats of climate change, like brutal weather, the rising seas, and our failing ecosystems, it's easy to forget that the constant torrent of carcinogenic chemicals we're belching into the atmosphere is also polluting the air we're always breathing. For those of us who live in cities, which is over 50% of the global population and rising, recent studies on the health effects of air pollution paint a hideous picture. Dennis Campbell recently reported a new study for The Guardian, which found that one in six British people diagnosed with lung cancer had never smoked in their lives. While the single biggest factor across genders was secondhand smoke, outdoor air pollution, which is primarily caused by car exhaust fumes, is estimated to account for 8% of cases, and outdoor air pollution is estimated to lead directly to 39,000 deaths a year in Britain. Even with declining rates of smoking, lung cancer in non-smokers is rising, suggesting a rise in the proportion of cases caused by air pollution. As well, Aaron Rubin reported in Mother Jones last week that the mounting evidence linking air pollution uh, reported uh, in Mother Jones last week on the mounting evidence linking air pollution to dementia. He cites a number of studies including one in the U.S. that found that in counties that were forced to comply with new air quality standards, older people developed Alzheimer's uh, at lower rates than in counties without the new rules. Jonathan Ketchum, one of the researchers authoring the study, estimated that enforcing the EPA's stricter air quality standards in 2005, quote, likely resulted in 140,000 fewer people living with dementia by 2014. Another study from 2018 found that Londoners living in areas with poorer air quality were as much as one and a half times more likely to develop Alzheimer's than those living in neighborhoods with cleaner air, replicating a similar study done in Taiwan. As researcher Caleb Finch put it, quote, I have no hesitation whatsoever to say that air pollution causes dementia. We mentioned on a previous show a study about how students in schools downwind of highways did worse than those in schools upwind, and I have recently personally noted how the scent and taste of car exhaust have plagued me my entire life. Nice little personal note there. Um, Just the other day, I'm walking down the street. I mean, more recent, more and more now, I'm walking down the street. I'm like, this this scent has been, this taste, this taste in my mouth, Stefan, of the fumes of the cars 
has been with me since a child. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and so and so the an important uh, addendum to this to that fact is is how um, how consistently it's also been shown uh, that that air pollution standards and air pollution is is much worse in 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 poor and more marginalized neighborhoods. Um, and so, if you want to know a real tangible way that environmental racism uh, has its impacts, uh, you know, look to see who is is forced to be beside. Um, you know, highways. Who is who is forced to live uh, so much closer to uh, to the congestion? Um, look to see who is um, you know who is forced to to, to, to live beside these the more industrial plants, uh, all of which uh, lead to these types of problems. Um, and the answer consistently is you know is the poor, more marginalized, more, more, more marginalized folks. And so this is a, a, a you know one of the things we'll be doing next week actually is we'll be talking to uh, to to a to a group a group of um, of youth who started a project called Six Sustainable Arts uh, to look at how art can 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 tackle and talk about environmental racism, um, and I think this is just an important uh, example of that. Um, but uh, let's let's we want to get through a couple stories. So let's let's get on to this congestion story. So uh, this air pollution should be particularly worrying to those of us living in Toronto, who have witnessed, as in many other North American cities, a rise in traffic congestion, especially in the two years since city council approved a bylaw allowing in rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft. By September of last year, 67,000 such private transportation licenses had been issued. Uh, by, con- by contrast, New York City, which has a population almost three times as large, temporarily stopped issuing licenses last year after they reached 80,000. And yet, Uber Canada General Manager Rob Kazam insists that Uber promotes public transit use by increasing access to hard-to-get-to subway stations and actually alleviates traffic congestion through carpooling services. But a, recent re- but, a recent, but a report released in July of last year, based on data from New York, Denver, and Boston, found that ride-sharing services are in fact supplanting public transit as well as biking and walking in those cities. Further evidence that ride-sharing vehicles are causing traffic congestion is coming from a study published just last week, which concluded that San Franciscans spent 62% more time sitting in traffic in 2016 than in 2010, and half of that increase, uh, and attributed half of that increase to the rise of ride-sharing apps. The researchers highlighted the frequent and often illegal stops to pick up and drop off passengers as having a, quote, a notable disruptive effect on traffic flow, on top of the effects of increased number of cars on the road. Rob Chasm, for his part, is unconvinced that capping the number of licenses will help congestion. He claims that congestion pricing on all vehicles is more likely to help. Yeah, so there is a... This is, this is the reason why, uh, or one of the reasons why I think it's so important to note that that when people talk when we talk about the sharing economy on the on this show uh i i at least personally do not include uber um as a part of of what i think the sharing economy really is um you know just because you get to use your own car and not something painted like a taxi does not make it not a taxi um there's just that's just there's like if you want to have a conversation about using our resources as effectively as possible uh we can have that but but this is certainly just not an example in my mind at least of of that conversation mm-hmm. um and and as as uber and lyft uh and these types of organizations go to uh you know are, are they're about to make a bunch of billionaires you know they're they're going public over the next over the next couple i believe it's the next within the next couple months and uh, at least uber for, i believe for sure and and that is going to be the amount of money that that that, that means as a public traded company, uh, the people who invested earlier are going to are going to are going to cash out in just, uh, influx of millionaires and billionaires are going to show are going to are going to just arrive or just exist come into existence in in San Francisco, and and important uh, backstop to that information um, is the fact that these companies are not designed to make money uh, with humans driving these cars. Um, like the, they are based off of the consumption that they can eliminate drivers and having to pay drivers and just have the cars. Um, and so, and so when you see these, when you see movements, um, 
trying to you know to 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 fight these things back. And and if the argument is coming from like a, these that these drivers need to be need jobs, yes, they need jobs. Um, but but Uber is not the one is not is not going to come out there and and be their savior. You're telling me they're uh, priced their stock is priced so high on the assumption that they're eventually going to be driverless vehicles. They are well they are, they currently are not profitable uh, and and yeah and the only in the path towards profitability rests on either. Put, driving down wages uh, pretty significantly of the of the drivers themselves, and ultimately to switching to driverless vehicles. Yes, I thought part of it was that they were betting on simply destroying the entire cab industry. Well, that's also well, that was the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're still not profitable. No, they're they're they were they're, they're, they remain they remain uh, unprofitable. And yet you have groups of people becoming millionaires because of their stocks, exactly. owning stocks in Uber. Yes, because they have such market share. Yes, that's the that's the that's the move. Um, but uh, but you you had some of these stories for a couple of weeks now. So let's get to these House stories. So um, well, do you want to start with Trump or the U.S. House? Let's start with Trump. So Donald Trump is easing regulations adopted in response to the 2010 BP Deepwater Horizon disaster, which killed 11 people and spilled over 3 million barrels of crude into the Gulf of Mexico. It was determined that lack of regulation was the main cause of the disaster, and now Trump is once again deregulating. I I, I think when this happened, which is um, um, – or – I, I, or at some point talking about this, I, I can't believe it's f- so long ago in 2010. Uh, I've said not feel that long ago, um, but I, I believe at that around that time, I, I was I was quoted at some point in saying that I thought that the Gulf of Mexico would be the first sort of sacrifice or one of the first major sacrifice zones of uh, of, of 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 the of moving forward that that humans would make it basically unlivable uh, despite for it's all natural beauty and it seems like Trump is is uh, is trying to make me right. Um, you know, despite uh, despite the sort of work to try to change that, um, there remains a uh, like this is one of those things that will just it will just happen again, and then everyone will look back at this moment and be like, this is when we had st- when this occurred, and and then we're stuck with it. How uh, could we have known? Yes, exactly. It's not like it happened less than ten years ago. Um, it's just yeah, it's it's yet another example of Donald Trump just truly not caring about the environment. But let's let's carry on. Or the uh, average fisherman. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm pretty sure the Wells Fargo CEO had something to say about that. I think it was something about, well, we decided the risk was acceptable, I believe was what he said. I, I'm Only a minor paraphrase. That was nearly word for word. So in other Trump news, Donald may find himself paying millions of dollars in fines for his poorly built towers in New York, since the city is now raising levies against heavily polluting buildings. Unless Trump retrofits his buildings to make them more efficient, he will face fines of $2.1 million every year after 2030. Among other, measure, among other measures in its very own Green New Deal, New York has also committed to divesting its pension fund funds from fossil fuels. Yeah. So, you know, the... Uh I don't know if I don't know if Trump has ever paid any fines whatsoever, uh, given his number of, of of ways around these types of things. He'll probably just declare bankruptcy again and then avoid paying them. Um, but uh, but it, the, the, what the important part here is 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 really just this the the fact that the, that New York as a uh, is is taking climate change pretty seriously. You know, to go back to Lauren's mo- mo- note about how a lot of the the true effectiveness we're seeing is admissible is admissibly. Uh, this is an example of that of that action happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we've got, we've got two more stories of this, or one more story about the U.S. House. So let's get to that story before we before we finish off. So Inside Climate News reported a couple of weeks ago uh, that the U.S. Congress has been debating its first climate change legislation in a decade, and the report's author Marianne Lavelle points out that the starkest divides are those within each party. The Democrats recently passed a resolution called Climate Action Now, which is meant to keep the U.S. in the Paris Agreement. But progressive Democrats thought it was far too weak, while some Republicans are growing wary of the outright denialism of their party that could hurt them politically. A recent CNN poll has returned with 96% of Democrats in favor of a presidential candidate dedicated to aggressive climate action, which was even more popular than health care. Beto O'Rourke has proposed a $1.5 trillion government investment in fighting climate change, which Sunrise activists and Green New Deal Democrats thought was not comprehensive enough. 
Republican Jody Heiss claims that the Green New Deal would drastically increase her constituents' energy bills, while a high-ranking Republican by the name of Michael McCall has said, quote, We can all agree that, climate change is, that the climate is changing. We need to take positive steps to address it. Another one by the name of Garrett Graves said, quote, I fully agree that the climate is changing. I agree humans are contributing to that change. I agree there's something we need to do about this, and we need to be aggressive. Wow. Yeah, like, I... I, I sort of speaks to the to the um, disconnect between what conservative uh, Republican uh, lawmakers will say and what they will do. Um, I, I eagerly await their their climate proposal. The we need to be aggressive. We need to be aggressive. We won't do anything, but we need to be aggressive. Um, made us like using the word aggressive, uh, and I think it's clear a war on something. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you know, this is the. What's interesting about here, identifying the sort of the, the divides within the, with their own their own places, you know, their own parties, uh, because and I think it shows that sort of there is this what what's happening. I, I hope what is happening, I guess, uh, for Republicans um, is that they are recognizing that the Overton window uh, on a conservative uh, response to climate change is is failing is is fading incredibly quickly. You know, they could have got a very, very conservative solution to climate change under Obama had they had they, uh, you know, had they agreed to some type of cap and trade, uh, you know, let the market decide, yada, yada, yada. Um, and their their absolute failure and balking to take this seriously at all has now led them to the fact to 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 multiple and many uh, um, Democratic uh, candidates advocating for a overhaul of the system, advocating for a much more progressive, much more systemic uh, response to climate change in the Green New Deal. Um, you know, even Beto O'Rourke, who is who is funded uh, in at least in part by fossil fuel companies, uh, is coming up strongly with this type with with type of messaging. Uh, I will say the only the only president uh, president Kente I've heard uh, really be uh, totally out to lunch um, on 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 climate from the Democrat side is is Biden, uh, who basically thinks that we can middle of the road this. Um, you know, but he's seventy seven, so what can you expect? Um, not to not to throw. All, there are many seventy seven year olds who understand climate change. Biden is not one of them, um, and so and so there's a and so this is the this is a this is a this is a, a problem that 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 exists. Um, you know, if we if we started the show talking about how we have the soft denialism of the liberals against the hard denialism uh, of of the conservatives, the Democratic Party right now is deciding what stance they want. Do they want the soft denialism of Biden, or do they want to take someone else who actually has a real plan to tackle this? Um, you know, and and I think that's the that's the big question, especially if you're seeing 96 percent of, of Democrats in favor of some type of climate action. I think that 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 is going to have to be a huge part of this primary race um, if they're going to really take this seriously. Climate action should start using scented shampoo, so Biden will approach and give it a sniff. Oh wow, <laughs> Biden! <laughs> and as a joke, and for reality, we're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm sorry, Stephen. I also had a sassy closing comment. I had something about jellyfish. Out of time. Out of time. Yeah. Out of time. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll have lots of jokes for you next week. We miss you. We love you, and we'll see you all real soon. Take care.